1: Okay, here we go. It's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy Howes. Hello. Today, on the podcast, we're going to be talking to Matt Smith, who is the living legend, the man himself, the managing director of the historic folk venue, Club Passim. You may have heard us talk about him on uh, Basic Folk in the past. Uh, We are excited to have him here today. But first, let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk receives support from McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean would be delighted to send you a free CD of their first EP, The Sampler Plate. Email lin at mcdean.co, lin at mcdean.co to get one. Like I mentioned, Matt Smith is a living legend with his unbelievable run at Club Passim, the historic folk venue nestled in Harvard Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he is currently the managing director of Club Passim. He is the most passionate music lover that I know Um, as basic folks. Producer Laura McCarthy said to him while we were recording this episode, she says, it's easier to name the episodes that don't mention Matt's name and unwavering support. It's pretty incredible. She's correct. By the way, we recorded this interview on Three Mile Island um, like we did Critter Eldridge's interview at Miles of Music Camp, and we recorded it on Sunday. So what does that mean? Well, that means lots of speedboats and lots of waves um, and lots of you know, water noises and stuff like that. Anyways, um, Matt has used his platform at Club Passim to help establish so many artists uh, like Laurie McKenna, Aeneas Mitchell, Lake Street Dive, and just a bunch more. Um, I met Matt while working as a student at WERS where um, he, Matt was already bringing fantastic shows into this just lovely listening room filled with people who are clamoring for honest music in an intimate space like Club Passim. Uh, So let's, let's get into this conversation. This is a rare opportunity to have a really long conversation with Matt talking about his early love for music, his first music job at Strawberry Records. He tells the fateful tale of how he finally came across Club Passim, how he started as a volunteer and worked his way up to booking All of the shows at the venue and uh, Matt also shares the origin story of Club Passim's biannual festival that he founded in 1998, the Campfire, which um, has turned into the biggest artist development tool for the club, which is something that Matt is extremely good at. Uh, for other musicians. Um, his role in artist development in the folk world is actually like pretty enormous, and it's hard to imagine what the genre would be like without him. Uh, I'm just so pleased to have him, and I think we should just get right into the conversation with Matt Smith on Basic Folk. So, Matt Smith, thank you so much for t- taking the time to speak with me.
0: Absolutely. It's my uh, pleasure to, to speak with you anytime, regardless of it being recorded.
1: Similar feelings. <laughs> um, so, we are currently on Three Mile Island in New Hampshire, which is on Lake Winnipesaukee, and there's a giant bug on your shirt. There you go. There you got it. There's a boat, um, boat coming. There is a boat, boat on the coming. water. We're overlooking the water. Um, so we thought this would be a great time to do this interview at Miles of Music Camp because um, we're both here, and also we live like two minutes away from each other. So <laughs> so we <laughs> need to
0: come 90 miles away to talk.
1: Let's start talking about Marshfield. Is that your hometown? That's my hometown. Um, what was your experience like in Marshfield growing up?
0: Pretty middle-of-the-road, middle-class existence. I do enjoy visiting. It's it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's. I still go back uh, yearly to the Marshfield Fair. Oh yeah. Because I am that kind of person. I, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what that means. Uh, but I, I know, like during high school and probably college, I had gotten to the point where it's like, God, I don't want to go to the Marshfield Fair. That's that's garbage. Why would I ever do that? Stupid. And now it's like that total nostalgia thing, and I yeah. love going back to the Marshfield Fair. Yeah. Uh, you know, like going to the demolition derby, and you know, that's really eating, picked up. Eating these terrible, days. terrible food, like fried and
1: dough and stuff.
0: Fried everything yeah. they have now. They've, they've really embraced that culture of let's fry all the things and sell them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so, your family was anyone musical in your family?
0: My dad was actually a jazz drummer, uh, and my mom played some piano. And she said she played cello and was very bad at it. Um, but did you ever witness that? No, no, I never witnessed any of my parents' musical ability. Um, I was, I was, uh, I think I came along a little later in in life for for most parents of the time, mm-hmm. and so I, I never witnessed their music. My, my dad, I, like I've seen pictures of him playing drums, and apparently he was very, very good, and would get hired out uh, by. Military bands for parades that were coming through town uh, would get hired out as a non-military person because he was a much good. better drummer than anyone yeah. that they had.
1: What about um, your relationship to listening to music at first? Uh, since I was a little
0: kid, I've been listening to music. My dad was really into Dixieland jazz, and so there were a lot of Benny Goodman records and things like that, and, and but also a lot of Sinatra, um, which I also when i was a kid hated because why would you want that as a as a kid growing up in the 70s seems like
1: yeah like did you feel like very nauseous listening to Frank Sinatra not
0: nauseous <laughs> but didn't make me feel comfortable you know it was it was just like nah this is just gloppy and terrible and fact is i love listening to Frank Sinatra now mm. uh, and a, and a lot of things you know just like when you're a little kid you don't like onions mm-hmm. and then eventually you become yeah. an adult and you say you know what Onions are fantastic. That's right. So I think of you know Frank Sinatra
1: as kind of my musical onion in a way. Uh, when did music first take on a bigger importance in your life? Probably
0: early teens, maybe thirteen or fourteen is when I started playing guitar. My brother had been taking lessons, and I said I want to do that, and so I got a an acoustic guitar. And then a little later on, I bought. An electric guitar and amp from uh, an old friend of mine from his mom who was selling them. It was a, like an old Vox amp and a Guild guitar. Cool. Uh, that were, I still have the Guild guitar. It's a beautiful guitar. And started to take some lessons. Back in the, in the early 80s, I started buying, you know, my own music. You know, but like I think I, I probably had a job when I was 15. And all that money was going right into buying music. And I mean that continues to this day. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm an avid music collector. Mm-hmm. There's kind of music in every aspect of my life.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. What was your first music job?
0: Uh, working at a record store, at a Strawberries. Oh yeah, in the mall. Um. Yes, actually. <laughs> come to think of it, uh, it was when I was in college. Uh, it was at the the, uh, what was the name of the mall? The Eastbrook Mall. Right. In uh, Storrs, Connecticut,
1: we had a um, record town. Mm. We didn't have a strawberries, yep. but always loved stopping by the strawberries. Yep. And,
0: I, and I and I during the holiday breaks would get transferred either to the Pembroke or Hanover stores. Wow, yeah. so It
1: must have been exciting.
0: important <laughs> important times.
1: When did your interest in folk music start?
0: In the mid '80s, late. 80s, I would, you know, in making mixtapes for myself, essentially, I would put together what I thought of as folk music mixes, which were, you know, would probably be, you know, Crosby, Silson Nash, Jackson Brown, Bob Dylan, uh, things like that. And then a friend of mine, when I was in college, made me a mixtape of modern folk music, which I did not know was a thing. Mm. And so it was, it had Bill Morrissey, Patty Larkin, Sean Colvin, probably the story, or uh, maybe the story record wasn't out yet. That was um, like '89, I think. Yeah, so maybe it was. So um, David Wilcox, uh, Cliff Eberhart, John Gorka, kind of all the all the people, Cheryl Wheeler, like all the people of that time mm-hmm. uh, that were that were making modern folk music, uh, but that were certainly all artists that were only played on the left end of the dial, which was not a place that I had visited yet Mm. uh, on the radio. And so it really blew my mind. And I was like dug in trying to find this stuff. You know, the internet wasn't around. You couldn't just go online and and figure out who these people were, where they were playing. And I started to kind of comb the record stores. And and, and since I was actually a young teen, my mom would drive a friend of mine up to the Braintree red line tea stop and we'd take the tea in the harvard square and i would go to all the record stores oh yeah yeah you know like that was that was something that that i was doing from the early 80s mm-hmm. and start to just experiment on my own see something like okay well this person sings backing on this record and so I'm gonna pick up their record too because they're part of something. Totally. And you know that was always something that I was really like.
1: You're going into. Like, a, like a treasure hunt.
0: Yeah, I mean that's yeah. always been something that I've been really into is is not just listening to the record itself, but learning about who produced it and who mm-hmm. plays this and who plays that and where where is that gonna take me? Mm-hmm. Music to me is, or as far as my experience with consuming music, is. To, to dig deeper than what mm-hmm. i've got in front of me and find out everything about that mm. and and what that person's circle is mm-hmm. because y- people have been doing this for for decades and centuries where you know you you, you don't listen to a martin sexton and then sit there and let that be the end of it. You know, you you go back to Ray Charles and, and, and you know and beyond and, and and find what the influences were uh, with that person, and mm-hmm. read whatever interviews you find from that person, and and really get a sense of where their music comes from. And I I just I've always loved that mm. you know, because it, because it, it it
1: never ends. It right. just
0: never ends. You're always
1: finding new music. It sounds like you have such a strong sense of curiosity.
0: I do, I do. That, I mean, that's that's what. That is what has kept me engaged for so long in, in working in music now. I mean, that, that that's... I've been working in music now for almost 25 years, and I am no less excited about it than I was when I started. Mm. I mean, look, like, I, I still have those moments of, you know, how did I get here? How that, how, how did that happen? Mm. Uh, but that that excitement about music, you know, finding a new artist years ago for me was for me, but now it's... I find that and I you know sing their praises at the top of every mountain that I can find yeah you know, because I have a platform where I can introduce other people to that artist mm.
1: I love that. Can you tell the story of how you first came to Club Passim, how you discovered it, how you found it to be a home for you?
0: Yeah, it's actually very... Uh, I have very specific, clear memories of it. Where I, I had heard of it. Uh, I, I, I had probably started listening to... After after finding out about this modern folk music world, I started listening to uh, WERS and WUMB. And, and finding out about these things and hearing the name Passim all the time. And... I would come into town, and I would pick up copies of the Folk Almanac, which was a, a newspaper that Scott Alrick and other folks oh, okay. uh, were, were putting together. That would have Scott
1: Alrick wrote for the Globe, yep. Boston Globe.
0: For there was the folk writer for the Globe for many years, uh, and so cool. The Boston
1: Globe had a folk writer. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, that, that
0: was that was a time. You yeah, know, where where that was really a thing, and I would hear about Passim, and and see concert listings, and hear them on the radio. And I I could not find the place for the life of of me. I I would walk around Harvard Square and be like, where's this Palmer Street? I don't know where this is at all. (laughs) And so I remember one day, uh, after getting this mixtape from this friend of mine, I went over to, it's gonna be entirely too specific, I went over to Mystery Train Records on Mass Ave, and I found a copy of a Pierce Pettis CD um, called Chase the Buffalo, uh, which was a new, a new, his new record. And so I picked that up and a few other things, and I'm walking around Harvard Square, and all of a sudden, there it was. There was Passing. I just walked down that alleyway, and I'm like... Oh, my God, there it is. It's right there. And the prophecy I, is true. And I looked on their schedule, and Pierce Pettis was playing there the next Wednesday. Are you kidding? And October 20th, 1993. Wow. And I put that in my head. I'm like, I'm going to go to that. I'm going to go to that show, because I got this record. I'm excited about it. And then I couldn't wait. And I uh, went on the Sunday before that, where uh, John Svetke and Barbara Kessler were playing. And I had heard of both of them also. And so I came into town and went to the Barb Kessler and John Svecki show. And that was my first show at Passing. And it was Sunday night. It was the end of a weekend run. People used to do, you know, you'd play Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon for a live radio broadcast, and then Sunday night. And I went to the Sunday night show. And there weren't that many people there. And I just remember being entranced, I, 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 I had immediately found home. Because I had been going to concerts since I was a, a mid-teen. I remember the first year that it was called Great Woods at the time, and I have no idea what it's called anymore. It's the big outdoor amphitheater mm-hmm. in Mansfield. Uh, I, I went to the first rock show they had there the year they opened. You know, I saw Julian Lennon play there. At, uh, at, at, and then went to see every huge classic rock act that was playing there. And so I was going to big concerts, you know, mm-hmm. going to going to the stadium in Foxborough to go see McCartney or The Who's and and then when I turned twenty one and was able to get into clubs, I was going to see much smaller bands in, in, in the early nineties like you know, Toad the Wet Sprocket and, and Cracker and and uh, bands like that. And and so the venues that I was going to were getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to Passy and I was like, one, I can sit down. Like, I don't have to get there. Because I was, I was the the nerd that would get there, you know, right when doors opened for the rock show. Mm. And so I'd get right up to the front of the stage. And, you know, the show doesn't start for three hours. You know, like, the the, the band comes on at 10.30 or 11. I'm like, oh, God, I've been standing here for so long. Apparently I was a real old man at, <laughs> at, at 21. And...
1: Isn't that an Anne Heaton song? It <laughs> that is. It is
0: an Anne Heaton song. Um, that, that, I suppose that was my reference point. Uh, and, and then I... So I had a seat. I didn't have to get there three hours early. Uh, and, and I was just entranced by these people that were just right in front of you playing their songs. And, and I think that there was no artifice to it. There was no, you know, in scare quotes, show of... You know, no big light show, no costume change. I thought I was going to see shows with big costume changes. Mm-hmm. But it was it was so raw and honest and immediate mm-hmm. and intimate. You know, you were. it was just this person with a guitar singing their songs right in your face. And I couldn't believe it. You know, and, and these people weren't much older than me. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And so I went to that show and then a few days later came back for the Pierce Pettis show. And then started to go around to a lot of the other local coffee houses, mm. you know, the coffee house performances. And I remember in 90, the fall of 94 when it shut down, I remember coming up into town to come to a show mm-hmm. and Bob and Rayanne, the couple that were running it, uh, were packing the place up and I was, and I, and I, I couldn't, fathom what was going on because I had found mm-hmm. this place and this was this was it, like, like this was the place that I wanted to see everything. And I, you know, I, I, I hurt that, that it was closing. It made no sense to me and I didn't know what I was gonna do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then that spring, whenever well, I was in Hard Square, I'd still walk by and go like, maybe, so, maybe it's gonna open again today. Maybe it'll be a show. Mm-hmm. And it looked like there was some work being done, and they had a little table outside with a a piece of paper to write your 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 name and your address and your phone number if you wanted to help out because they were going to reopen Passim. And I was like, yeah, you know, there wasn't email or things like that Mm -hmm. yet, and so so it was just, and I got a call. and they were looking for folks to help out in whatever way they could, running box office or, or you know, um, there was some actual, you know, sort of mild construction things and stuff like that. And so I started volunteering right when it reopened again. It, it converted to a nonprofit organization, reincorporated it as a nonprofit organization, and started volunteering right away. You know, and, and I and I couldn't believe that. I was somehow now involved in this place that mm-hmm. you know over the course of, the, of a year plus before that had completely uh, it had completely changed my 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 musical life and my worldview in a lot of ways.
1: Mm-hmm. So Passim opened was it nineteen fifty eight as Club Forty Seven. Yep. Is there any way to talk about the different incarnation of the club over the years?
0: Sure. Well, when it when it Originally opened, it was a jazz club. Uh, and then, you know, from the stories I've heard, basically, like, it was a jazz club for a little while, and then Joan Baez was looking for gigs as a college freshman or whatever. And the, the scene was changing, and everyone was like, oh my goodness, who is this person? We need to put her on all the time. Mm. And the programming changed to folk music
1: because of Joan Baez? Kind of. Wow. Yeah,
0: I mean, I mean like and the, the uprising of, of folk music at mm-hmm. the time and so it ran you, you know some folks say it, w- it was a non-profit back then it wasn't so much a non it, w- it was what was called a private club because of the, the Massachusetts blue laws that are very strange laws that are still in the books in a lot of places until this day uh, that that state you can't have x number of people and x number of stringed instruments and and drinks at the same pl- you know it's it's, <laughs> it's like it, you know it's the sort of thing where you know it's also illegal to eat peanuts in church uh y- you know like that was actually a law on the books at oh some point you know illegal
1: you know that song that's uh it's like mama don't want no uh, oh yeah Guitar playing around here kind of sounds like the blue laws were based on that. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, uh,
0: you know, it so became a a a private club where you know it was like a dollar to get a a club forty seven membership, and I think they were they were I don't think you had to re up your dues. I think it was a lifetime membership. Um,
1: I wonder if anybody's still in that.
0: (laughs) I mean, there's people that have the cards, you know. but so the, the, the folks that, were, that had run it uh, at the very, very beginning moved on and then there were three folks, Betsy Siggins, Jim Rooney, and Byron Leonardo's, who then took over running the place uh, for, for the rest of the duration of the Club 47. It, it, it was started at 47 Mount Auburn Street. It moved to 47 Palmer Street in October of 63. Uh, after being, you know, basically told by the landlord, you know, we don't we don't like your kind around here. you got to get out of here. It's too noisy and you're all undesirables. <laughs> and so they moved across Harvard Square to an empty space that had no floor. They put the bricks in themselves and also did not have an address. And so the post office was petitioned to let it be 47 Palmer Street because they were already called the Club 47.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it stayed there until it closed down... In '68, uh, where the folk scene had kind of changed, a lot of folks had moved out west, out to Berkeley, California. Um, a lot of a lot of the folk world had gone electric, you know, as as it happened, and still happens.
1: And was Passim like very strictly folk, like no electric guitars? Do
0: you mean Club Forty Seven?
1: Yes, Club Forty Seven. Club Forty
0: Seven. No, because I mean the Chambers brothers played there, like Muddy Waters, Buddy Guy. You know, with their bands, uh, they weren't strictly folk, um, or 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 strictly folk in whatever folk means to anyone at any mm-hmm. given time. It's it's, a, it's no drums, big, no
1: piano.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the radio rule. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that. Uh, but when it then it reopened, and I can't recall the names of the people that that first reopened scene but it wasn't Bob and Ryan but then Bob and Ryan took over the space very soon after it reopened and it wasn't they weren't doing music at all it was gifts and cards and books and and kind of random A store? R- yeah random curiosities and people kept coming by saying where's the music you know what what's what's going on where's the music and I think eventually they just got irritated by the question and started putting <laughs> music on <laughs> uh, and then but then it became the 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 home of what has often been called sort of the urban folk singer uh, for the next, or the urban singer-songwriter, for the next 25 years, uh, through some pretty lean times in folk music. You know, the 80s, you don't necessarily think of a lot of folk music.
1: What about like fast folk?
0: Yeah, well, that's that's true, that's true, but that was in New York. Right, okay. Uh, but a lot of those those folks uh, from Fast Folk, were coming up to Boston and playing. Right, there. I mean, there, there was there were there were a handful of other clubs that were going on while Passing was going on in the '70s and '80s. It was the Idler. Um, that's that's the one that jumps to mind that a lot of folks were playing at both Passing and the Idler. Um,
1: Is there anything happening in, in Northampton?
0: Right now? No, no, like R- at
1: that, <laughs> in the 70s and 80s. I'm sure geez. there's
0: something happening. Should we the... go check it right, out? Let's go, let's go. <laughs> let's get a boat. Can you get a boat to Northampton? <laughs>
1: Probably. <laughs> like a duck boat.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. We'll, we'll go over the mountains here. Um, I don't know. I really don't know if anything was going on, because I don't think the Iron Horse started till the 80s, uh, later in the 80s. Right. But I'm not. I'm not certain certain of the history. I'm not of questioning
1: that. you on the history of folk of, music or, or of
0: Northampton. Of Northampton, North Northampton was Hampton. incorporated as a town. In, uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so I remember being in college and loving music and loving radio, but kind of like not understanding about how powerful it was to actually like make a difference in a community, both for music fans and for musicians until I started meeting those community musicians and then actually like really caring about them uh, and, and caring about connecting them with music fans. And I imagine you have your own experience with that?
0: Sure, sure. Uh, after volunteering for a few months at the club, I was asked to come on and learn more because I was there more often than even some of the staff were because I was a little music geek and just and loved <laughs> being there and, and had a job that I was completely unfulfilled in. Uh, you know, like a, jo- a job that you get out of college, a little ways out of college just because you're supposed to get a job and you need to pay for things. Mm-hmm. And I had a job that I really didn't connect with or enjoy at all. Uh, so I was I started volunteering at the club more and more. And when I started working... I, I started to learn about these you know th- this incredible scene of young artists that were just getting their start mm-hmm. and I started to in in, in working in, in a venue you know you're, you're trying to figure out how to get people to come to shows and and so I started to think of try to get how to get creative in crossing over audiences with this artist and that artist and who to pair is an opening act with one act to the next, or how do you structure a bill so that people don't leave when they just see the person that they want to see and don't hang around for anything else. So I started to get into programming a little bit, uh, which I never really thought that was something that I was going to do. But it was, it was purely because these artists were friends of mine and I wanted to help them out, because I thought they were incredibly talented and people would get excited by them when they saw them. And so the the first show I put together was I started a series called Songwriters in the Square uh, where it would be an in-the-round show or like something very collaborative or -hmm. with the opportunity to be very collaborative. And sort of bringing that the whole is going to be greater than the sum of its parts where each artist is going to inspire each other and kind of take the whole thing to another level as opposed to just seeing a set of this person, a set of that person, a set of that person, you're out. Mm -hmm. So these artists... Kind of inspired me to take a creative role mm. in my job, I really started to get excited about not just the music itself, but how to get that music in front of people. Mm. Like how to, how to put something together that was going to excite an audience.
1: So it sounds like the club really took a chance on you when it came to programming and curating. Absolutely. And so how long did it take before you were able to establish yourself as someone who has that really good ear for talent? Did you ever have to, like, fight for certain artists or concepts?
0: Um, not, I wouldn't say fight. Uh, I, I would, I would certainly let my voice be heard. Uh, you know, in, in, in advocating for artists.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And Were you
1: told, no, like, what would happen if they said no? Were you just like, all right.
0: Yeah, I don't know that I was told no. I mean, you know, in, in, a, in a space where you're programming seven nights a week, mm-hmm. there's always space. You know, there, there, there's always, you know, that, that Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday that your big headline act doesn't want to play. And so you're able to get creative. You know, you're able you're able to say, I'm going to take this Monday night, and try to do something interesting enough to get people to come out on a Monday night to see it. Mm. Um, or I'm going to take this bad holiday weekend and and do something with that. See how I did that? Yes. So I led right into that. Right. Saw it in your eyes. Uh, <laughs> so so, this this sunrise in the square series, that I was running, we'd take three or four artists, and put them in the round. And rounds can be transcendent, Let's, but uh, they can be awful. Can
1: you explain really quickly what a round is? A round
0: is where you have three or four people on stage together, and they swap songs. Like You kind of go down a row, and one person plays, then the next person plays, the next person plays, the next person plays. Who
1: made that up, Joan Baez? Uh, uh,
0: probably went before her. I think the uh, uh, cave people probably made that up. <laughs> you know, grunting in the round. <laughs> and I, th- I think that the, the key to And in-the-round that works is there are common threads with people and and, and also the the willingness to be in the moment. Uh, If a person sort of has a set list in mind when they're in the round, it kind of breaks it into segments as opposed to being a continual flow. Mm -hmm. So someone that, that is gonna just sit there rigidly and awkwardly while the other three people play until it gets back to them and then tells their story as if nothing else happened around them. Mm-hmm. That's not fun. That's right. not fun for anybody.
1: So the way you would program uh, songwriters to... in the square to have collaborative yeah. people in Yeah, it.
0: sometimes it was very direct, and, and they would work out stuff ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was just, I think these people would go well together. Uh, it, it, was, it was deliberate. It wasn't just, well, you know here's three people that can show up that day. <laughs> uh, it, it was deliberate. Right. The series was going fairly well. I mean, they're, they're. When I think back to, like, some of the folks that played those shows, you know, like, Mary Gaucher played them and Slade Cleves played them. And, you know, like, like, and it was like all these people that are like, wow, they're all awesome and, and still going and are, you know, still writing their best songs and are, are, are successful in, in their careers. And, you know, everyone's got to start somewhere. And so. In the summer of '98, uh, a friend of mine who was an artist manager and I uh, started talking about this songwriters in the square concept, and we were coming up on Labor Day weekend, which is a terrible booking weekend because it's a holiday weekend; people go away, uh, and and so you're you're at that conundrum of. The big headline act that wants you know that that, that has a guarantee on them um, you know y- you might be hard pressed to to cover that guarantee because people won't come out because they're away for the weekend or th- those artists just might not want to play because it's a holiday weekend mm-hmm. and so we started to kind of come up with a, a concept of taking this songwriters in the square series and exploding it over a weekend because at the time the club passing open mic scene was huge I mean, we we would have. You know, it had gotten to the point now where there were so many people that signed up. It was a one-night, it was a one-song open mic. And we would have anywhere from 30 to 60, or maybe even more than 60 people, sign up to perform. We would have sold-out open mic nights, you know, because then you'd get that many in audience as well. And there were points where we'd have to turn people away and they'd have to come back, you know, later when someone had left. And so the, 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 Local scene was really huge right then with a lot of incredible talent. You know, uh, Chris Delmhorst and Jess Klein and Jay Beyer and Sean Staples, Mark Arelli and Rose Polanzani and, uh, in the, we're, were all coming up at this time. So we thought about how to take this concept and just blow it out over the weekend, but also it was the same weekend that the brand new Boston Folk Festival was going to happen. And so we met with the folks who were starting that up, and talked about how we could collaborate. You know, where if if people bought a pass for the Boston Folk Festival, we'd let them into our weekend for free. Uh, and apart from that, it was going to be five bucks. We pay five bucks. It was from three or four o'clock till to about two or three in the morning, and then Saturday and Sunday it was from noon till two or three in the morning. And we didn't program Monday, the holiday. Were you there
1: the whole time?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yep, and have been for almost all of them since. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there have been a few single days that I've missed because of weddings and things like that, but uh, but never a whole day. You know, like I'll go to the wedding and then drive back and, and be there for the as much of it as I can. And... The idea was we just take this scene, we we, have, we had so many great people and not enough spots on a, a regular calendar to, to give them gigs, and, and not that they would have enough draw to have a gig of their own, mm-hmm. uh, but how could we kind of celebrate all of this and and give them stage time in, in a in a planned way as opposed to an open mic? There, there were a lot of folks that were brand new to the scene. I remember uh, Erin McKeown played the first one and she, was still in college when that happened. And, you know, Marcarelli played. What and year was the
1: first campfire? It,
0: it was Labor Day of 1998. And we were hoping that over the course of the weekend that we would get 200 people to come. You know, like that, like that would be a success, a mm-hmm. huge success. Even though it was, you know, like 15 hour days of music, you know, it, was just, it just felt like if we got people to hang out um, for this completely nutty thing, then it would be a huge success, and I remember uh, Sunday night we crossed over six hundred tickets.
1: For the first weekend. For the first time we've done it.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, we couldn't believe that that it had, that many people came mm-hmm. to this ridiculous thing, <laughs> and, and, and you know, and, and people don't get paid for it. It's, it's it's if we if we paid people for it, we we would go broke. Uh, You know, when people talk about you know like the free gig, oh the free gig is kind of garbage. It's like, well, I'm also volunteering my time. This is putting an extra week of work into a regular work week. You know, I'm I'm working an extra forty hours plus Mm. (laughs) over the campfire weekends on top of the forty hour week I'd already done. So you know, like I'm in it with the musicians. Mm -hmm. I'm there for, uh, you know, for them. Like it's it's all about taking them and putting finding the audience for them. And th- there have always been standouts at the Campfire Festival that then move on pretty quickly into opening slots and headlining slots, and, you know, you can get a lot of traction from it. And, and it's still, I'd say it's still our best artist development tool mm-hmm. that we use to this day.
1: Yeah. So I have been to the Campfire a number of times and have my own crazy stories, but I'm sure. do you have, like, what is the craziest Campfire story?
0: Oh, There was uh, actually one of my favorite campfire moments was a couple years ago. Dietrich Strauss, Dinty Child, and Zach Hickman did the closing round, Mm -hmm. and they brought in a bunch of branches and a little fake campfire and camp chairs, and we turned the lights down and nothing. And it was like essentially being at Miles of Music Mm. camp, and they were actually playing around a campfire. And you know, the, so like they had all these branches, so it looked like they were sitting in the forest. You know, when when one of them would use a cape, would take a cape off their guitar, they'd clamp it to a tree branch. You know, that's and, then, so cool. <laughs> and they brought in a cooler of beer to hand out to people. Um, it was pretty hilarious. Pretty hilarious.
1: Oh, that's so funny. What advice would you give someone like in a different city trying to build up their own local community music community?
0: Well, I, I think I think it is just the idea to, to think of it as a community, and 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 don't think of too many ideas like for your end game, like what you're like. Uh, let your goals be flexible, mm-hmm. and always be there for each other, because if you have an idea of what you want it to be, and someone else has a different idea, it's not going to go well. It's it's not going it's not going to work if you're if you're all. Working towards different ends or doing it with different reasons. Mm. There's a certain amount of altruism that has to be part of everyone's way of thinking about it. As like, this needs to be for the betterment of everyone without gain. Mm. uh, For it to be honest, I think. Uh, I, I over over the years, I've had several people ask me to be their manager you know uh, several artists mm-hmm. and, I, and I and I dip my toe in the water once or twice but I have found that I am much more valuable as an advocate when I'm not their manager because someone else can look at a manager as like will you stand to gain from this mm-hmm. because you are essentially on this artist's payroll right uh, there you know you you're their their sales pitch in a yeah. way uh, and if I don't have any horse in the race and I go up to a festival booker and say, you need to check out this artist. They're amazing. Uh, they're more likely to listen to me than mm-hmm. if they hear it from the manager, who, of course, the manager has to say they're amazing. And and it might be because that, that manager believes they're amazing, but there is a, a power structure and dynamic there that's attached to it.
1: Mm.
0: At some point, there's got to be someone in there who is doing it purely because they love the music. Mm
1: Mm-hmm, that's so so true. Um, Here's a question for you. Yes. Are you ready for the lightning round? Oh,
0: I am ready for the lightning round.
1: Okay, we will be right back. Basic Folk is supported by Tina and Her Pony. If you like fresh takes on traditional music, you might like Tina and Her Pony. Follow them on Spotify or at Tina and Her Pony. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. Matt Smith, you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready for the lightning round. Okay. All right. Well, we'll start from the... Bottom up. I usually start from the top down. But Dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt Smith, what is the most beautiful place you've ever visited?
0: Wow. There's a lot of beautiful places. Uh, the, the most beautiful place that I've visited often is probably where we're sitting right now.
1: Yeah, Three, three mile,
0: mile Island up. on yeah. Lake Winnipesaukee.
1: Star Trek or Star Wars?
0: Star Trek.
1: If you were a doll, what accessories would come in your box? Copyright my friend Samantha.
0: Um, a, 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 an interesting hat, just because I never really wear one as a human being. Mm, what kind but of I hat? think maybe as a doll, I could pull off a hat in like a, a way top that I don't. Could, could be. It, it might just be a, a beret. Now that would be pretentious. Ooh, yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe a bowler?
1: Okay. Records are streaming.
0: Records, oh please, records.
1: Flying or invisibility? Um, flying. You know, I
0: used to have dreams of flying, but it was more like hovering. I would, I would be horizontal, and I would hover about four feet above the ground. You know, like I, I, I would be, my head would actually be lower than it normally would be if I was fully standing. So I would float around about four feet above the ground.
1: That's wild. It's
0: really weird. I don't, uh, I don't know what that means. I don't either. Someone, someone uh, call in. The lines are open.
1: <laughs> Caller, you're on the air. Morning <laughs> person or night owl? Night owl. Beetles or rolling stones? Beetles. favorite type of white noise?
0: Uh, ocean or water, lapping water like we have right now.
1: Wonderful. Uh, dream collaboration.
0: Uh, what, what am I collaborating in?
1: If you're Musician. Oh, Music. musician? Yeah, or or dream in the round.
0: Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, I hadn't really, uh, <laughs> wow. Not
1: prepared for these questions. I,
0: this one, dream in the round. Well, Zach Hickman is gonna be part of it, and Dinty Child, actually, you know what? My dream in the round just happened at the club about three weeks ago, <laughs> where it was Dinty Child, Zach Hickman, Mark Gurley, and Diedrich Strauss, and that is a super white male round, I know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's no diversity in that whatsoever. And I know that's not what I want to promote, but it was just so fun. Mm. It wasn't about them being white men.
1: Right. <laughs> no, it's... I'll let you pass on that one.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Um... Can, can we edit that out? That...
1: <laughs> First concert.
0: Uh, I think it was Sean Anna, actually, at the oh. South Shore Music Circus in Cohasset, Massachusetts.
1: Oh. Uh, who is your favorite teacher?
0: Uh, Richard Gardner, my, my high school senior year English teacher.
1: Dogs, cats, or something else? Dogs. Matt Smith, you did B minus on the leg. Oh, <laughs> wow. I got
0: to go back to school.
1: This has been really great. I feel like we talked so for two hours. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you, Cindy. I think that Matt is the guest on Basic Folk who listens to Basic Folk the most. Like Matt listens to Basic Folk probably – he probably is like the second person after uh, my mom to listen to all of the, the Basic Folk's. Um, he's, he's been a huge supporter of the podcast, and I want to thank him a lot for all that he's done. And in fact, uh, we had a Basic Folk live at Club Passim Actually, on the day that this podcast is going to be released, uh, we did a live episode and we'll be sharing a couple of those um, coming up. Actually, two episodes um, will be shared that were recorded live at Club Pass So I'm pumped to uh, share those with you at a future date. And thank you, Matt Smith, uh, for just being a force of goodness in the world and for being on uh, the podcast Laura McCarthy produces Basic Folk. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm Cindy Howes. You can find more information about Basic Folk at cindyhowes.net. Sign up for the newsletter. You can join the Facebook group Basic Folk Basics and just, you know, keep on listening and subscribing and sharing and just shining and doing good stuff. Okay.